Really? I'm going to go full Britney Spears on this? We had a mic fail right as I was getting on stage, so I get to look like this today because I'm not coordinated enough to hold a handheld while I preach. Is this on? All right, I guess. All right. All right, let's go Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Ah, I feel like such an idiot right now. Okay. Paint this thing flesh color to be great. Um, Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit, I think, because like, nothing else can go wrong today, right? Um, we, uh, we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the rooms, a little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take one of those physical ones home. The reason for that's really super simple. Uh, we believe that God uses his word to do big things in his people. And the simple act of opening God's word and reading it, God uses that in, in ways that, that I can never do by preaching. Uh, he illuminates his word. He uses it to convict us of sin and draw us to repentance. He uses it to reveal himself to us. And so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, we would love for you to have a Bible of your, your very own. And so uh, grab that one and take it home and call it yours and start reading it and I'll call it a win. Um, so uh, we are in a series that's going to lead us up all the way through Easter that we're calling the Already But Not Yet Kingdom. All right, the concept for that is really, really simple. Um, in Matthew chapter 4, at the end of Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is going around and, and Matthew tells us that he's going around and teaching in all the synagogues with an authority that no one's ever had to reckon with. And he's doing miracles and everybody's wanting to get a little piece of Jesus. And he's going around, quote, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. All right, and so there's this big crowd of people gathering around Jesus, beginning to flock around Jesus. And so in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus sits down on a hillside, a section of teaching we call the Sermon on the Mount, and he begins to teach this crowd of people. All right, so what makes Jesus' kingdom different than all the other kingdoms of this world? Well, Jesus is going to spell that out for us. All right, uh, and so... Uh, Jesus' kingdom is just different and kind of backwards and upside down from the rest of this world. And he begins to walk through all of these different concepts, these upside down things about his kingdom. And it's kind of throwing people for a loop. There are some people who aren't going to follow him after this moment. And I think Jesus is doing that on purpose. I think he's, I think he's laying down some tracks for us to, to, to follow along here. And, well, it's, it's otherworldly in a lot of ways. And so... We've talked about the Beatitudes, and we've talked about this, and we talked about that. Some of the most famous stuff that Jesus ever said is recorded for us in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we've been walking through it. It's kind of the King's Manifesto. Like, if you want to get into the mind and the motives of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount's a really smart place to look, isn't it? So we've been walking through it, and now we're to chapter 6, verse 1. Are we ready to look at that today? All right, look at it with me. Chapter 6, verse 1. We'll just read this first little part. It says, beware, Jesus says this, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So let's call a time out there. We'll get to the rest of the, the text in a second, but let's call a time out there. All right, the Greek word for the word seen there is the word theomai. Everybody say theomai. Yeah. Yay, you know Greek. Yay. Theomai. It, it's related to the word that we get theater from. So what does theomai mean? It means to be noticed. Like if you're standing on a stage awkwardly wearing a weird microphone. <laughs> to be noticed. It, it's, it's got the idea of doing things for the sake of appearance, for the sake of perception. 
And Jesus uses this word here. He says, to a crowd of people, beware of practicing your righteousness for the purpose of being seen. And I think if we were to just take a second and think about it, like, would it take us very long to create a sizable list of people and organizations and maybe even churches that have this kind of track record of doing things for the sake of being seen? that have an external righteousness, a facade of righteousness rather than actual righteousness? And don't we all have a story or two to share of a person or an organization or company or whatever, politician maybe, church leader, or somebody who kind of faked it for a while, but then their character eventually rose to the surface? Yeah. You don't even have to live very long. You just have to turn on the news tonight, right? Yeah, we, we all know that story. We've Sadly, some of us have lived that story and, and paid the consequences of it. Some of us have friends and neighbors and family members who are walking that story. All of us at least know a story of somebody who had the appearance of righteousness but lacked actual righteousness. And eventually, it's, it seems to always be found out, doesn't it? Here's the problem, though. Jesus isn't addressing some faceless organization right now. And he's not addressing your buddy who threw it all away. He's talking to followers on a hillside, isn't he? He's talking to you and to me. He's, he doesn't say beware of other people's hypocritical righteousness. He says beware of practicing your righteousness for the sake of being seen. See, Jesus thinks that we're in danger. And he's concerned about us. According to Jesus, we are all in danger of desperately, desperately wanting to be seen as righteous more than we actually want righteousness itself. I don't know if you've ever paid attention to this or not, but I think we can point to all kinds of stuff in this world just like that. Like It doesn't even have to line up with biblical standards. It could just be our culture's understanding of what is good and valuable, what's culturally celebrated. And as our culture shifts and new virtues are, are defined and assumed and declared, like, is it really hard to watch public figures and major corporations and everything in between fall in line with that new value system? It's not because their morals have changed. It's because it's good business, right? And so companies and things that used to kind of build themselves off this traditional or family dynamic now very much are the opposite of that. And it's not because their morals have changed. It's because... The dollar bill has changed, right? It's gone to a different section of the market, and so now they've got to focus on that instead if they want to remain relevant, right? Yeah. But it's not just major corporations. This is individual, too. Like, like aren't entire industries built around virtue signaling now? So you don't just donate to a charity anymore. What do you do? You get a T-shirt to show that you donated to the charity, right? Is that the world we live in? That's the world you live in, hush. <laughs> yeah. That's totally the world you live in. And so we think things like Project Red cell phones and stuff. Like, that's the world we live in. So we, don't just, we don't just do a good thing. We've got to show that we've done the good thing, right? Something tragic happens. Every public figure is pressured to jump on Twitter and give their response. Right? And on a more comic level, this is also why we have like Facebook profile picture frames. You, you know what that is? Those of you who don't have Facebook have no idea, but those of you who do, 
that superimposed image that goes on top of your profile picture so that people can know as they're scrolling quickly through their news feed that you're praying for France or that you're you know, voted Republican or that you think that something ought to be legalized now. Whatever that thing is, like you got to make sure that your friends know about that, right? So now we have this thing where you can add a picture on top of your picture so people know that you're for that thing. And so as our culture shifts, so do those things. Uh, we, we all have this tendency buried deep down inside of us to want to be seen as righteous, to want to be seen as virtuous, to want to be seen as with the times, if you want to go there, rather than actually be that at a core level. It's been buried deep down in us since the fall in Genesis 3. It's not new. Our, we happen to live in a like a capitalistic culture that is really smart and creative and comes up with new ways to make some cash off the process, but it's not new. It's been buried in us since the fall, and Jesus, who, who understands what's actually in our hearts, he says, beware of this. Watch out for this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Now, if we were to take a step back and allow the culture around us to, to try to prescribe a fix for the problem, what do you think they'd come up with? I think some go, uh, would prescribe what I would call a Darwinian approach that, that says that virtue isn't actually a thing. It's just kind of this thing that our, our culture has created for itself to deal with issues. Right? It, it's, the urge should just be ignored, and it's nothing more than a vestigial of a bygone era, right? I think a lot of people in our culture would say that. and that We don't actually need morality anymore. We just needed it for a while to be defined by something outside of us, but we're past that now. The problem with that worldview, though, is that no one can actually practice it in a public way without looking like a jerk. So I don't have to be virtuous. I'll just do what I want. That doesn't last very long in our culture. We, we tend to attack that. And so people usually keep quiet about it even if they believe it. The other prescribed fix for this problem, I think, would swing the pendulum all the way the other direction to what I would describe as an Americanized quasi-Buddhism. Yeah, that, that, that's what I think. Americanized quasi-Buddhism. Does that make sense? Probably not. Empty yourself completely. Virtue must be isolated from any speck of self-benefit for, in, for, in order to be actual virtue. Otherwise, it's selfish and not actually altruistic. And so we got this Kantian altruism here that we're supposed to chase after. And in fact, Immanuel Kant kind of seemed to argue at one point that this would be a return to classical Christian ethics if we chased after that. Problem with that, though, is there are two really massive problems. One is that Kant appeared to ignore one of the most famous theologians in Christian history, Augustine, who argued the exact opposite of this kind of worldview. And two... We haven't finished reading the first sentence of King Jesus here. What does it say? Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, comma, not a period, for then you will have no what? Reward from your Father who is in heaven. So when it comes to this sinful desire deep down in us to be seen as righteous more than we actually want to be righteous? Jesus' answer to the problem is not to dismiss virtue altogether, and it's not to rob virtue of, or empty virtue of any reward for us, but rather to call us to a much better reward. A higher reward, an infinitely more pleasing 
reward, and I think this is critical, an eternally sustainable reward. An eternally sustainable one. Jesus wants us to raise the level of our eyes and make wiser investments. Take your eyes off this world and its temporary treasures and put them instead on an eternal kingdom. See, Jesus thinks that the greatest problem in the world is that you're aiming far, far too low. Wait a second, Woodard. That sounds a little upside down to me. Yep. Because the world we live in, no matter what culture we want to pin it to, and the upside down nature of Jesus' already but not yet kingdom are often very backwards to each other. But our boy Jesus, he doesn't leave us there. He actually fleshes all this out for us. Look at verse 2. Jesus isn't just going to make a statement and then run off. He's a big boy and he's going to tell us what he means. Verse 2, thus. We can say therefore or because of or in light of. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. That they, uh, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Okay, um, so Jesus says that if you want public approval, if that's all you're aiming after, if that's all you're chasing after and hoping to gain in this world is the attention and the acclaim of those who see you give, well then congratulations, you got it. Good for you. Now what? Like, if you really want to make a show of your generosity, well then, hey, you'll get exactly that, a show. But like everything else this side of heaven, that public approval is going to have a shelf life. And and listen, especially public approval. Like, those of you who have lived long enough, you know that there's maybe nothing in this world more fickle than public approval. More fleeting than that. Most people lose it as soon as they gain it. That's why we have sayings like, they're 15 minutes of fame, right? That's what that's built around. So you got it. Great. Now what? What are you going to do with it? How are you going to hang on to it? Remember who Jesus is talking to here, though. He's talking to followers on a hillside. So what does he say to them? Look at verse 3. But when you give... But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Okay, so left hand, right hand, what's going on there? Well, there's actually a ton of debate. Like, really smart, Bible-loving people have come to very different conclusions about what Jesus means here. And so, we could pick a commentator, we could pick a study Bible. What do we do with it? Well, I think the most natural reading would be for that that most people throughout all of human history, myself excluded, most people are right-handed. Like, I'm not. I kind of do things weirdly. I can do some things with my left hand. I do some things with my right hand. Most people are just kind of right-hand only, right? Like, I'm weird like that. But most people, they, they eat with that hand. They write with that hand. They use tools with that hand. They do all the normal stuff with that hand. And, and when is the left hand invited to the party? When it's big enough to be a two-handed job, Right? When it's out of the routine, when it's out of the normal, when it's out of the second-naturedness of just the right-hand stuff. For most people, the left hand is only brought in when it's a special instance. 
I think Jesus is saying here that, that giving should be just so natural, so commonplace, that it's really just a part of the normal tasks of the day. Fairly routine, nothing to get too worked up about. Not even really paying attention. It's such a non-issue that the left hand isn't even invited to the job. Doesn't know what's going on. Now some have looked at this text, this verse 3 right here, and they have taken it to mean that, that we've got to kind of try to go to extreme lengths or great ends maybe to, to hide or attempt to hide our giving. I don't think that's what's going on here though. I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to, to push us to. I don't think it's a command to secrecy. Because Jesus said just a few verses ago in chapter 5, 16, that we are to, quote, let our light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven, right? Like, I know it's been a few weeks for us, but, like, we're, we're talking about one sermon here, right? Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is one sermon. We're talking about a couple of minutes for Jesus' audience between those two points, if that. If you're a fast reader, if Jesus is a fast talker, it's only a few seconds. So, is Jesus contradicting himself here? No, he's talking about the theomai. Remember that Greek word you now know? That desire to be seen, to be noticed, to be celebrated. I think he's taking our attention away from the fleeting pleasures of this world the things that we so easily chase after, and he's putting them instead on something better. How do I know that? Because of the first two words of verse 4. What does it say? So that. All right, class, what do we do? When we see these two words, what do we do with it? It's a connection, right? We treat it as the connecting point between two clauses. And the first clause is a means. We read it as a means to a greater end. So Jesus just said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that. So what's the so that? So that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will what? Hear me clearly. <laughs> Jesus wants you to aim for a reward. Full stop. Wait a minute, doesn't that sound an awful lot like the prosperity gospel? I mean, shouldn't we be chasing after God's glory instead of our reward? Two things. One, the reward that Jesus promises here and God's glory are not necessarily mutually exclusive. They don't have to be in competition with each other. Maybe even the same thing. Two, if your framework for rewards is something that the prosperity gospel proponents would recognize and celebrate, then I think Jesus would say you're still not thinking high enough and you've probably forgotten what we've talked about in the first three weeks of this series. What are the very first words out of Jesus' mouth in this sermon? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the what? If you're thinking of some material blessing every time Jesus mentions a reward here, you're thinking incorrectly. You're still aiming too low. Raise the level of your eyes. Jesus is painting a picture here of something that's far more satisfying and far, far more eternal. Far more eternal. But that's just in how we interact with others. I think Jesus gives us two more categories of how we interact. Like he, he, he walks us through how we interact with others, but I think he 
walks us through some, some other stuff too, like how we interact with God and how we, how righteousness interacts with ourselves. And Well, next he paints a picture of something really big. Look at verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues that they're at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 7, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. All right, so these four verses get taken out of context all the stinking time, like daily. If in the event that you're new to the Bible, or maybe, just maybe, you've seen these verses before and used these verses before and misunderstood these verses before, hear me clearly. Jesus is not saying here that public prayer is sinful. I know that sounds weird coming out of my mouth. But I've had people argue that to me, pointing at this verse. Jesus doesn't say here that public prayer is sinful, nor is he saying that long prayers are sinful. I can't count how many times I've heard people argue exactly those things. So what is Jesus talking about here then? He's talking about the Aomai. He's talking about that sinful core level desire in each and every one of us, myself included, that needs to, wants to, yearns to be seen as righteous and put together and on top of things, even if we're not actually righteous and put together and on top of things. And so he points to people who go seeking out an audience for the purpose of trying to impress others. Some go to the synagogue, some go to the street corner, but both of them are chasing after attention. That's what they're chasing after. Both of them desperately want to be seen. And so what does he say? He says, go find a quiet place. That'd be better for you. He says, don't heap up empty words like the Gentiles do. You think, you think God's impressed with your churchy vocabulary? Well, he sees right through that. What are you doing? Who are you trying to impress with that? You might succeed in impressing some folks on the street corner, but God knows what's really in your heart. He knows what you ask before you need it. Jesus says if your prayer is ultimately only after the recognition of those around you, then that's all it'll ever be for the recognition of those around you. Congratulations, you got it. Now what? Now what? And so in verse 9, he walks us through something that even if you don't have much of a church background, you're probably pretty familiar with, may even have memorized. Verse 9, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, meaning uh, magnified or made bigger is your name, made more holy is your name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. All right, so a couple of scholarly level things to work through here. Um, 
just to address real quick. Some of you may be wondering, first of all, uh, where is the part about for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever? Amen. Probably not original. Probably not original. Our, our best guess is that, uh, that some scholar came in and added it later because uh, the earliest manuscripts that we have of Matthew's gospel account don't include that little section. Now, many of you grew up reciting that and knowing that and memorizing that way. Some of you still prefer to read the King James, and it's in there uh, because the manuscripts that we have that, pre, that predate the, the, the ones that made the King James, they came in later. That We found those after the King James was written. And so we, the earliest manuscripts that we have don't include that little section. So is it wrong? Like, is it, is it sinful if I add that when I pray this? No. Probably not. It's consistent with the rest of New Testament theology. Like, does anybody disagree that for Jesus, the kingdom belongs to Jesus, and all the power belongs to Jesus, and all the glory belongs to Jesus forever? <laughs> Amen? <laughs> like, I guess that, that's not inconsistent. So what do we think happened? Well, we think a, ha- a scribe came in and wrote what we would call a doxological annotation. I know that's a weird thing to say out loud. Doxological annotation. He annotated the text in a doxological way, meaning as an act of worship. And so he got done reading that text and was like, "Mm, I need to say something here. And he said, for yours is the power, kingdom, the power, the glory forever. And somewhere along the way, that that morphed from an annotation into being considered part of the text because people didn't know better. That's what we think happened. But the most modern, solid translations don't include that. Uh, Some may include it in little brackets, if you have that. Some of them just have a little footnote there and add it at the bottom. Second scholarly issue. Some of you grew up reciting this prayer in church traditions that recited it on a weekly basis or maybe even on a daily basis, whatever your deal is. So, is it wrong to recite the prayer? No, not a bit. But I don't think that was Jesus' intent. And it may actually be missing the point of what he's doing. Um, in verse 7, Jesus goes out of his way uh, to get on to those who heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, right? To heap up empty phrases. So follow me here. Just think through this logic for a second. Is Jesus giving us a prayer that we should repeat just as empty as any other prayer we could repeat mindlessly? Is that going to fix the problem? Not even a little bit, right? You think Jesus is smarter than that? I think Jesus is smarter than that. Let's agree that Jesus is smarter than that. I don't think that Jesus wanted us to repeat this prayer. Secondly, we we don't see a single instance in the rest of the Bible, either in the book of Acts or in the rest of the epistles, where the church repeated this prayer. Not one. We definitely see them praying. Sometimes publicly and very lengthily, I might add. But we never see them recite this prayer. And so if Jesus wanted them to recite this prayer, well, they got it wrong really fast, right? Yeah. So what should we do with Jesus' model prayer then? Well, I think we should use it as a model. Right? Is that, is that complicated? <laughs> I think we should use it as a model. Probably with both tone and category. Um, I wish I had an extra 10 weeks to kind of walk through this prayer. Maybe we'll get that one day and we can spend more time on it. Um, But what's the super short general idea? Well, let's read it again, but this time let's count how many times you see the word me and I. Our Father in heaven, 
Hallowed be your name, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Okay, class, how many times did you see the word me or I? Zero. Not a one. This prayer begins with celebrating God's bigness and celebrating God's goodness and celebrating God's lordship, and it ends with petitions for the collective us. It kind of looks to me like Jesus would have us stop focusing on ourselves so much when we pray. I don't think it's wrong to focus on us. It's not wrong to ask God for things. I think he wants exactly that from you. But if more and more of our prayers look like this, perhaps the moments when we do pray for ourselves would look a lot more humble. Just a thought, right? But again, I don't have time to really get into that. We'll come back to it later. Look at verse... Look at verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive what? All right, so these two sentences get really, really squirrely if you forget what the gospel is. Let me make it extremely clear. Clear. You cannot, and I'll repeat that for emphasis, you cannot Earn your salvation by forgiving other people. Are we all on the same page as that? You cannot, I'll repeat for emphasis, cannot earn your salvation by forgiving other people. That's not how any of this works. It's inconsistent with the rest of the Bible in every way. And so what in the world is Jesus talking about here? Who is he talking to? Followers on the hillside, right? He's talking to his followers, people who have already heard in this sermon, in this sermon, that their righteousness will never, ever be enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's talking to a group of people who in this sermon have already heard that the kingdom of God will be given to those who are humbled before God. So Jesus doesn't have salvation in view here. So what does he have in view? He's talking to followers. He's talking about the same kind of forgiveness that he's talking about in verse 12 when he says that we should ask the Father to forgive us our debts. He's talking about that kind of sin that breaks fellowship between us and the Father. He's talking about that instinct in each and every single one of us to pull away from him when we fail. You think to yourself, oh, that's not me. No, it's you. We pull away from him when we fail. And we do this with other people too, right? You, you mess up your relationship with somebody. You, you want to hang out with them after that? You tend to avoid them. And so fellowship is broken in that moment. But Jesus says here that if we're quick to forgive others in that moment, rather than pull away, rather than pull back, rather than try to hide, our Father will be quick to forgive us too. That sounds like something we should lock down and just remember for the rest of our life, right? Yeah. But there's a third category of, that our righteousness interacts with. We, we, our righteousness interacts with others. Our righteousness interacts with God. And thirdly, our righteousness interacts with ourselves. Look at verse 16. 
And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in, who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will what? Reward you. Again, Jesus says that if you're fasting, and, and we could probably add here any of the other personal disciplines, right? any of the other personal spiritual disciplines, it says if you're fasting, if your aim in doing this thing is to be seen in that moment, recognized in that moment, well, congratulations, you're going to get it. You're going to be noticed. If your whole hope and aim is to be noticed for your personal righteousness, your personal devotion and and whatever, then congratulations. People are going to see you. What you're really chasing after is for people to go, hmm, look at them. People will look. If in that moment you go, oh, no, 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 no. I'm fasting. (laughs) Or, oh, no, 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 no. We're in a season of saving money right now. Oh, no, 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 we homeschool. We can go on and on and on about every little personal discipline that God might call you to. Jesus says that in that moment, that if in that moment, your whole hope, everything you're hanging your everything on is to be noticed for that thing, then congratulations, it's reached its limit. You got your reward. Now what? Because it'll end there. Some people will love you. Some people might respect you. Other people may just avoid you. But you'll be seen. Oh, you'll be seen. But to steal some words from Jesus earlier on in his sermon, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness... True righteousness. Well, they do. They'll anoint their head with oil. They'll wash their face. Normal things for a first century Jewish person. They'll go on about the regular business of their day. Why? Because they're aiming for something far better and far more eternal and far sweeter than anything that public recognition could offer them back. They, they, they don't want that. They're aiming on at something better. Jesus wants you to aim higher than pithy little public accolades. It's a waste of your time. If you're thinking to yourself, well, that all sounds pretty selfish to me still. Well, Jesus is going to nail it down for us in the thing he says next. He makes it unmistakably clear now. Verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye of the lamp of the body, uh, excuse me, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. 
No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So the world tends to point to those uh, who spend their entire lives pursuing material wealth as those who have the greatest ambition and the greatest, shrewdest minds. But I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't, I don't think Jesus would agree with that assessment. Like, despite what the world might celebrate, how do you think Jesus judges those as the king of this new kingdom? Jesus seems to think that those people are actually aiming too low. Too low. Their, their ambition is actually not high enough. And to take it a step further, I think he also thinks that they're making unwise investments. Because there is nothing. And some of you need to hear this this morning. There is nothing this side of heaven that won't end up in a trash heap one day. Nothing. And that's if you're lucky enough to not have it break on you or stolen first. Jesus seems to think, though, that there's another type of investment that's actually untouchable. And that will always, always bring the returns it's promising. It can't be stolen away from you by rust or moth or thief. And if that's actually true, maybe Jesus just doesn't know what he's talking about, but if that's actually really true, then wouldn't common sense dictate that we chase after that instead? You may want to go, no, Jesus, he's clueless. That boy, he doesn't know what, he needed a financial advisor. He'd think better otherwise. He needs to go sit down at Edward Jones for a little while. But the king of this eternal kingdom actually has more to say. So look at verse 25 with me. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? I mean, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes uh, the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Again, if, if we had another 10 weeks to talk about this stuff, I'd take every second of it. But what's the quick and general idea? Jesus says that you spend your time and you spend your energy worrying about these material things because at the end of the day, you've got your eyes on them instead of your God. That's his point. He says you worry about these things because you're not looking at the right place. 
And because you're focused on them instead of God, you overestimate their value and you ultimately underestimate God's great concern for you. You skew them both and misrepresent them both and you're blind to what's really going on. Spend enough time in church and you'll eventually come across a quote from C.S. Lewis uh, from his book called The Weight of Glory. It says this, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Spend enough time in church, you'll, you'll come across that quote once or twice. You've probably heard it before. But Lewis is consistent with Jesus here. We are far too easily pleased. Jesus says that your father takes care of the birds and he takes care of the flowers far better than anything we could ever offer them. Don't you understand how much more valuable you are to God than the birds and the flowers? Like seriously? You really going to do him like that? You're going to doubt God's concern for you just that quickly? You're going to give mental assent to the cross and then forget who he is that fast? You really going to go there? I say it all the time, guys. Sin makes you stupid. Exhibit whatever. We're blind. Because our eyes are on this instead of him, we misrepresent and misunderstand both. We misunderstand both. So Jesus calls us to raise the level of our eyes. We're aiming far too low, and because of that, it causes you to see yourself incorrectly. It causes you to see others incorrectly, and far more tragically, it causes you to see God incorrectly. Oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. Quit worrying about this, this stuff down here, and instead seek the kingdom, he says. Seek the kingdom. And when you seek the kingdom first, all this other stuff, it'll come. It'll be added. Don't worry about it. Raise the level of your eyes. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God today. And I think you do that by repenting of sin and leaning into the kind of life he's called you to. Lean deeply into that. It's a life that looks past the trappings of this world. It doesn't mean that it doesn't notice them, but looks past them to a far, far more eternal reward. I think it also means that you take this message of a better and more satisfying king to those who are growing more and more frustrated every day, spinning their wheels. I think that one of the most valuable questions that someone can reckon with in this world is, hey, how's that working for you? How's that going? Is that, is that bringing in what you thought it would bring in? Is that, is that producing the fruit you thought it would produce? I think most of us try to busy ourselves and distract ourselves from that question most of the time. But I think when we're finally cornered into answering that question honestly, it creates a brilliant opportunity to introduce a better king. So church, who has God put in your pathway this week that needs to hear about a better way? Who's chasing after something that 
moth and rust will eventually destroy or thieves will break in and steal. Who needs to hear about a better way? Because, I mean, that's the ultimate mission of the church, right? Repent, lean in, share with others. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of leaders up front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you this morning. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm glad you chose to hang out with us today. You can respond to God's word too, and you do that by repenting of sin and trusting Jesus, calling on Jesus alone as Lord. And so Jesus has some pretty specific stuff to say to his followers here in the Sermon on the Mount, but do not miss the fact that he's speaking to followers. These religious things do not earn their standing with him. Their standing with him was given to them and is now the fruit of their standing with him, these things. Don't get it backwards. You could white-knuckle your way into achieving every one of these things on an external level and still be far from God. You can go into your little prayer closet and you can pray to whoever you pray to and you can give quietly and be incredibly generous with your time and your money and your resources. You can do all these things. You can live your life as, as if there's some kind of reward later on and you can do every bit of that without a king. Because you've decided that you're your king. What a man is will be the chief influence in what a man does. See, Jesus doesn't think that righteousness for the sake of impressing others is that much valuable. And I think, I get the impression that Jesus would say that righteousness for the sake of impressing him is actually insulting. What you actually need is a new heart. But lucky for you, Jesus is actually in the heart-changing business. Jesus came. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross to pay the debt that your sin owes and to purchase you for himself. He rose from the dead to secure new life for those who belong to him. And it's through that grace-fueled, faith-fueled life that we can actually please Him. So today you have the opportunity to respond to Him in that faith. I want to pray. We're going to sing. Maybe today's the day that you need to repent and believe. Another important question that we can ask is simply this. What's stopping you today? Repent and believe. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. As we all respond to your word this morning, would you work in us? Would you show us our sin? But more importantly, would you show us your face? Give us an idea of what you're offering by revealing a little piece of yourself. All these material things, I, I see them more clearly, but I care about them a lot less when you give me yourself. So the most valuable thing that we could do this morning is celebrate you and worship you and honor you. Christ in me, Christ before me, Christ after me, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I rise up. God, for those who 
don't know you yet, would you make yourself known to them today? Would you draw people to yourself? Would you call us to repentance? And would you edify your church? In your name, amen.